Good morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, on the FM dial, online at kpca.fm. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman. I'm the Rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We're back again today to meet some guests and learn a little bit more about some of the people in our community. During our second segment at 10.30, we'll be welcoming Rayuth Porat, who's a member of the Board of Directors of uh, B'nai Israel Jewish Center, and an Israeli, to get her perspective on the life in this community. And during our first segment, right here in the studio right now, is Matt Brown, editor of the Argus Courier, uh, this week's deadline is over, so you must be happy this morning. I sure am. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, it's great to have you here. And uh, I can imagine that every deadline... Uh, did you ever do a daily newspaper? Uh, yes, I used to uh, be a daily daily reporter, so I, I know the daily deadlines and the, and the weekly deadlines, and I know all about deadlines. Your deadlines are tough. Yeah. They're tough things. Okay. Well, I'm glad you could be here with us this morning. Thank you. And as we do always with our guests uh, on this show is to ask a little bit about your background, how you got to be where you are here at the Argus Courier, and why this piece of uh, a job is so passionate for you. Why is it your passion? So go ahead. You're on. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I've always wanted to be a journalist. I, uh, my background, I grew up around here. I grew up in Santa Rosa, went to high school, Cardinal Lumen High School, and then uh, went off to college. And, and after college, I went into the Peace Corps. And I served for two years in West Africa in uh, the country called Guinea. And while I was over there, I learned a lot of, uh, I learned about a lot of different uh, cultures and a lot of different people and saw um, many stories that I thought were underreported that, that I had never heard about before because, frankly, Africa doesn't get much coverage in the, in the Western media. So I thought, well, what a great um, career it would be to go and tell some of these stories that are underreported. So that was sort of my goal, was to become a foreign correspondent. So after the Peace Corps, I went to grad school at, at San Jose State and got a master's in journalism. And, uh, and then got a, a, a job right after that at a local newspaper in Lodi, California. And from there, with my experience in the Peace Corps and my background in journalism, I was able to get a foreign correspondent job in East Africa. And I moved to Nairobi, Kenya, and became a, a foreign correspondent covering the whole East Africa region. And it was an interesting time to be over there. It was 2008 to 2010, roughly. There was a lot of... Um, wars going on in the region. The, uh, the big, one of the big stories I covered was the piracy epidemic off the coast of Somalia, if you remember that. Right. A lot of big uh, ships, cargo ships, container ships were being hijacked by pirates, and that was a big deal. There was a, a war going on in Darfur in Sudan, and another um, genocide going on in Congo. So I covered that, that whole region and, and all the different conflicts that went on there. And now you're here in Petaluma, California, the wilds of western United States. 
the the only the only wars that we have here are over uh, uh, public art and uh, sometimes uh, development. But uh, they're a little little more tame, but but certainly just as passionate. I was thinking of trying to fit the bathtub here in this uh, studio this morning, but I, I didn't think it would fit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, so. Yeah, I was thinking as you were describing a really varied and uh, colorful background of experience. Uh, when you come to a local newspaper, uh, you know, often local newspapers have the reputation of uh, dog bites man stories, right? That's the, the old line about local newspapers. How do you meet the challenge of making news uh, in a local community like this? What's that like? Sure. Well, Everybody has a story to tell, and uh, and you, you look in your community, and, and the more uh, closer you look, uh, the more you'll find stories. For example, in today's paper, we have um, a story, a feature story about uh, a, a disabled veteran who lives here in Petaluma, and he started an analytics company, and uh, he, he works all over the globe solving some of the, the world's toughest challenges just from his garage in Petaluma. So, you know, these are these are... You know, everyday people who are, are doing interesting and unique things, and everybody has a story to tell. So, you know, this town has what 70,000 people. We could we could do a story about every single one and have, you know, seventy thousand stories to tell. So, it, it, there's no shortage of that. Well, actually, I was I looked at that story this morning. I said, oh, he would be a wonderful guest to have here on the radio because that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do in this context, which is to give people the opportunity to meet leaders and or innovators or common people, whatever that means. I don't want to even get into that. Um, in our community, to be able to know it better. So I, I hear that. Yep. I hear that. So what, what's the decision process of what makes the story? What? How do you do? You make all the decisions on that as editor. Is there? A, do you have a committee, a staff? How does that work? And, What's the staffing like at the paper? Sure. Yeah. Well, we we're a, a small staff. It's uh you know because we're the weekly paper here for for Petaluma, the paper of record, and um, we have about five people working uh, on staff. There's uh, someone covering the the arts and entertainment scene. We have a, a sports editor who covers uh, the local sports, the high school sports. Uh, we have a, a news reporter who covers the city and and uh, everything the city council does and and all kinds of other general news, a great photographer who's on our staff, uh, and then um, a, a brand new publisher, and myself, the editor. So it's a collaboration each week that, that we produce our paper. Um, it's a collaborative effort, and we all work together to uh, come up with, with interesting and unique stories from the community. So everybody's kind of focused on their specific beat, and they, they, they know what's going on in, in in that world, in the world of sports, in the world of entertainment, what's going on in the local news scene, and uh, and we put together a story list at the beginning of the week. So today is Thursday. We just put out our paper, so we'll probably sit down today and talk about the stories we're going to work on for next week, and uh, and then we we go through the news cycle again for the week, and we start reporting uh, Thursday and Friday and, and Monday, and and then put the paper together on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and and put it out on Thursday. For some people in newspaper business, that sounds like luxury, right? To have all that time to be able to uh, to work through uh, what goes in the paper. You use the term paper of record, and I believe that has a legal meaning. 
So would you care to clarify that for us? Sure. Well, uh, you know, if, if someone has to um, publish a, a legal notice, you know, a, a business name or uh, any kind of, um, um, you know, thing that they need, like the, the city when they have to put out um, notices of, of meetings or public hearings, then they have to publish that in a newspaper of record, which is uh, considered a, a general circulation newspaper in that community. And we are the newspaper of record for Petaluma, so people can put their legal notices in our paper, and, and that would qualify them legally. But also, uh, we've been in, in Petaluma for 163 years. We are the, the actually older than the city itself by three years. We've been, um, we're the oldest, uh, oldest continuously operated business in Petaluma. And so uh, it's been, it's a, just a, a long tradition of good journalism, and we're just continuing on that tradition. So you must have been the original editor that has been brought back, <laughs> right? I keep saying that because I, B'nai Israel Jewish Center uh, is 154 years old, at least the minutes I have go back to 1864. We may have been there before. So I keep saying, yes, I was the rabbi then, but I've been brought back again after uh, several iterations of, of the world. But uh, <laughs> did you ever try to imagine what it was? I do that at times, I'm trying to imagine my community here 154 years ago and what it was like. I'm sure you think the same thing, too, and we're, we're lucky to be part of this kind of institution. It's great. I, we have um, uh, some archives in our offices with, with old newspapers that go back to the 1800s, some old uh, graying, uh, you know, falling apart newspapers, but but you could read them and kind of get a feel for what the city was like, uh, you know, 150, 160 years ago. And, and certainly a lot has changed, uh, but, but we do see kind of the same issues come up over the years, uh, you know, the issues of growth and development and how the city's going to grow. And, and, you know, back when the city was 1,000 people, 10,000 people, they had the same issues of, of, you know, where are we going to put more people, where are we going to build, where are we going to put the roads, how are we going to pave them, and, you know, they, they keep coming back up and, and gives us something to write about. Well, I, I say the same thing about the minutes from the 1864 board meeting. The agenda looks the same as next week's meeting. So, uh, yes, I understand that that human, human interaction, human uh, development of a community is uh, just universal and it, over time, and it's great. Yep. It is, it's good. It's wonderful. So uh, does the Argus Courier use any of the wire services, and how do you relate? You're part of the Press Democrat uh, Sonoma Media Corporation, right? That's right. And so how does that, how do they all interrelate? Do you use wire services, etc.? We're, uh, we're all part of Sonoma Media Investments. That's our, our parent company. It's local ownership, which is great. We have... Um, you know, a lot of newspapers have big corporate structures, and, and they don't get a lot of uh, individual attention from their, their owners. But we have local investors who are in the community. They're in Sonoma County, and they own the, the Press Democrat, the Argus Courier, the Sonoma Index Tribune in Sonoma, the North Bay Business Journal, and Sonoma Magazine. And we um, here at the Argus Courier, we don't have wire services like the New York Times Wire or the Associated Press, but um, those are more focused on national and international stories. The Press Democrat does pick up those stories, but we do pick up the Press Democrat stories from time to time, especially on our website when we can't uh, cover the Board of Supervisors meetings in Santa Rosa. We can rely on their their coverage to, to talk about countywide issues that would be important for our readers. 
Um, I did used to work at the Press Democrat, so uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with that newspaper. I was a, a reporter there at the Daily Newspaper, and uh, and I know all the editors there, and, and we do share a lot of content. So sometimes they'll pick up our stories as well and, and run them when um, uh, you know stories out of Petaluma have a, a broader regional impact for the readers of the Press Democrat. And so there's a lot of... Uh, sharing and trade-off that we have within our company. It's very nice. Yeah, I saw some of the Petaluma stuff in the Press Democrat this morning, so uh, yeah, I, That's I, right. I realized that there... Yeah, I, I said I've read that article somewhere. <laughs> uh, that is true. So um, what, what do you see as major issues in our community? What, what, what's going on from your perspective, and what kinds of things are you pursuing to figure out Sure. Well, this year it's going to be a, a you know another big year for 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 Petaluma for news. Um, I think there's going to be a, a couple key issues that we're going to be covering this year, um, especially on the, the the city council beat. The, the that's kind of our, our main focus is what this the, you know what the city government's doing. That's that's still what we do is is watch the city government and see what they're doing, how they're spending our tax dollars, and and holding them to account. But I think. Uh, a couple big issues. One is going to be the housing crisis. Obviously, the um, uh, the fires had a big impact on the whole region, and uh, and even before that, there was a, a pretty major housing crisis. The the um, the prices for rent and the the prices to buy a house have been going up and up in the whole region, and frankly, Petaluma is probably going to have to to continue to to work to solve those problems and, and probably going to have to start approving more developments or uh, looking to to do things to help spur some of those developments. Uh, more affordable housing, changing some of the density requirements for, for downtown so they can encourage more infill development downtown. Um, so those are going to be big things. Where people are going to live, where, you know, where they're going to build developments and how people are going to be able to afford them. So that's that's definitely going to be a key issue. So here's a question about this kind of interview. Can I ask you opinions? Is a newspaper editor allowed to have a public opinion about the issues that you might see in the community? We try, we try and keep our opinions out of the, the news coverage, certainly. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. If, if you read a, st a story in the, the news section, uh, y you you will not find the opinion of the writer. That's we're going right. to talk to both sides and and right. get the the opinions of, of our subjects and, and people that are are passionate on both sides of an issue. But we'll keep our own bias out of that. We do have an opinion section in the paper, um, and we we write editorials for that section, which is really the voice of the newspaper and. In that section also, I, I do write the editorials with collaboration with our publisher and, and other members of the communities from time to time who we ask for their opinions to share. Um, and, and in that section, I also try and keep my own personal opinion out of it, but I try and, and um, sort of triangulate what the opinion of the community is or what I, we think that the majority of readers would agree with or uh, what's best for the community. And that's what we're trying to um, dissem disseminate in that section, in the opinion section. So, yes, I do have opinions on uh, on certain issues in the city, but I, I, I try and not let that come out in our in our coverage. But I'm, I'm happy to share 
you know, my, my feelings I, I here. I mean, one of the things, of course, that was commented on, I think, in a letter to the editor today was about the proposed tax increase and uh, all that, which is going to be controversial right. every time a tax increase comes up. So I wondered what you felt about that, having observed the community. Uh, you've written articles uh, from the perspective, hearing the perspectives of the chief of police, the fire department, about funding, about staffing, about the city services, about the, and of course the famous potholes that we have. So I was wondering what you felt uh, personally about that, if that uh, with this tax increase coming up and what the prospects are for it. That's a great question. Well. I, I, you know, I've studied the city's budget, and I've certainly heard uh, from all the city leaders on on what the city needs, and there's certainly a, a budget deficit, or there there will be soon. A lot of this does have to do with the pension crisis, and a lot of people talk about the, the city's pensions and that the city's cost for the pensions are going to be going up. A lot of that is is not anything that the city can do. Right now, they've 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 done as much pension reform as they can. There are uh, these contracts that are in place that they negotiated, uh, you know, a decade or two ago with with now retired city workers, and those are obligations that the city will have to pay, whether they like it or not. Now, we can uh, either pay those pension obligations with the entire budget and have nothing left over, or we can do something to increase the revenue. We'll still have to pay those pension obligations, but with increased revenue, then we'll have money left over to fund things like the police department, the fire department, parks, roads, other things that the city needs to be doing as a municipality. So I, I do agree that the, the city's finances are threadbare and they do need an additional revenue source. Now, what that looks like will be interesting to follow. We'll, that'll be a debate over the next year whether it's going to be a sales tax, whether it will be a, a parcel tax or a, a tourism tax or some kind of other creative revenue stream that they come up with. But I, I do think that there needs to be some discussion over what that will look like, and, and that will be interesting to follow. And are there any of uh, the housing issues and the relationship with the developers, the, the Safeway gas station on uh, uh, over there at the, on the east side of town? Um, all those issues that are ruminating in the community have their detractors, have their proponents, and it's a constant—it's a constant battle in in the public world in Petaluma. That's right. No different than anywhere else, right? That's right. And those are those are uh, you know all big issues that will be coming up again this year. Uh, the, the public art you mentioned these uh, the the proposed bathtubs—they'll uh, be. The, the will, uh, that'll actually come up probably later this month. There'll be some sort of um, uh, uh, mock-up at the at the site on Water Street where the, the artist will put up, a, um, they call it story poles, where they'll put up a, a um, kind of what, uh, in the footprint of where the, the proposed art project will be so people can get a feel for what it's going to look like uh, in the final design. But yeah, that's another divisive issue that we didn't see coming that you know turned out to be very divisive, but uh, but these are these are the types of issues that uh, that really you know make the news and make a, give us something to cover because uh, you know they're they're controversial and, and people have strong opinions on both sides. Yeah, I guess uh, pleasing sixty thousand people is a difficult task, no matter who's in government or 
however our leadership is working, there's always going to be uh, tensions and criticisms. Yep. Um, you know, one of the issues facing journalists in this country and in, in a sense in the world is the attacks on the journal on journalism and uh, seeing you know, the whole issue of fake news and journalism ripping apart the world and we shouldn't trust journalists. How does that seep down into our local community and what's been your experience with it? Give you a chance to to talk about that a bit. Certainly, that it, it, it's it's unfortunate uh, the the state of the attacks on the media in this country overall. I think we're a little bit insulated from that here at a, at a local newspaper. We're still a trusted news source. Um, we are the only place to to come and get news from Petaluma. There's we don't have any other newspapers here. There's there's no other uh, major news source. So. Um, I think people still know that they can come and get uh, unbiased opinions or unbiased uh, information here and facts, fact-based news. Um, I think nationally it is it is troubling to see that, you know, especially from right from the very top, from the president uh, and, and some of his supporters who, uh, you know, chant fake news and, and uh, they, they call certain outlets fake like CNN and, and the New York Times think you know other outlets that are doing great work great journalism and it does erode the the public trust in in journalists all over the country and it's unfortunate but all we can do is continue to do our job and continue to uh, report the facts and present the facts and, and information to the public and let them make up their own opinions and it has been, I agree with you, a certainly sad time to hear all of these attacks. But, you know, in the past, there's always been tension in the relationship between the press and community political leadership. There's a certain, uh, you know, there's a certain distrust that comes across that could spur the political leadership to say, let me just keep away from the press. And we don't want that. We want the flow of information of course, to be accurate and timely and reported in a way that will help the community be able to make decisions. Right. What was it like for the paper covering and uh, for you covering the election process in this community, uh, the campaigns, the various uh, disagreements, uh, uh, the crazy phone call, don't vote for, I never had a don't vote for call before uh, in, a, uh, in an election. What was that like at the paper? Yeah, it was an interesting election. Um, you know, we saw a, a, a robust slate of candidates, uh, you know, a, a competitive mayor's race. And, um, it, you know, it was a, we had some, some good debates. You know, we hosted one of the debates and, and got all the candidates together, uh, 10 candidates in all, to, to um, uh, you know, share their opinions. Uh, but there was a little bit of, of nastiness towards the end. There was an outside funding campaign by a, a coalition of big oil companies that, that pumped some money in to, to try and sway the election, uh, the mayor's race there at the end. Um, so it was an interesting time to, to, to cover that, that election. But um, in the end, I think that, you know, voters had enough information to make up their own minds. And um, I think, you know, we got the... The, the best slate of candidates that, that you know we could and and or the, the 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 winners got you know I think deserve to win 
So I have a question. What, what do you think about the proposition system? Because, you know, you're reporting on the various propositions. And as a voter, and I consider myself a little sophisticated in terms of being able to understand the propositions, etc., those propositions are very complex. They're very complex. Uh, many years ago, there was one about uh, the healthcare management before some of the modern uh, Affordable Care Act and all that. And I said, I have no idea what this means. I, I just couldn't comprehend it because it's not my field of expertise, etc. So in terms of the newspaper, do you, got, do you analyze all this? Do you go to legislative council meetings to find out what they're doing? How do you make decisions on the editorial page about which propositions you're recommending? Yeah, some of those are very obscure. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, niche industries trying to, um, you know, get their interests passed through the, the legislative process or through the, the proposition process at the ballot. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit broken, that system. Um, you, it's not that hard to get something on the ballot, it's certainly when there's low voter turnout. The, it's um, uh, in the, the last um, gubernatorial election, the turnout, uh, that's what determines how many signatures you need to get on the ballot for the next election. So it's, um, it's, it's a little bit of a broken process, but we try and cover the issues that are important, so not every single um, proposition we'll make an opinion on, but certainly ones like the gas tax and things that affect voters in Petaluma. So have you ever discovered in your uh, researches why gasoline costs so much in Petaluma? <laughs> That's, uh, uh, you know, California is, is a little different than most states. It's a little higher because of our special blend of gasoline that we use here. But Petaluma, that's a little bit of a mystery why, you know, we're higher than even just Santa Rosa or Nevada or someplace that's, that's close by. It's, uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Well, that's an assignment for you today, Ben. <laughs> Let's have a little investigative report and uh, figuring that out because people ask it all the time. Every time I drive outside of Petaluma, the, there could be 30, 40, 50 cents difference in the cost of gasoline. So it's yeah. kind of fascinating. That gives the uh, supporters of that Safeway gas station some fodder to, uh, you know, yeah, for their course, project. Of yeah. course, yes. Any last words or comments you'd like to make to the public about the, uh, the Argus Courier, your work there? We, you know, we welcome uh, submissions, letters to the editor, uh, news releases. If you've got anything, we rely on the public for to be our eyes and ears out there. We can't be everywhere. So if someone has anything that they would like to share with us, you can always email me at matt.brown at arguscourier.com, M-A-T-T dot brown at arguscourier.com. So if you want to share your opinion or anything that's going on in the community, let us know. Well, thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday morning. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. We'll see you after the break.
Good morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. It's great to have you with us uh, listening. And in our studio for the second se- segment of our program today is Rayut Porat, who is a member of B'nai Israel Jewish Center, a member of our board of directors, what uh, other distinguishing titles? Israeli. Uh, yes, that's a good one. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Ted. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, it's great to uh, have you here and uh, embark on this little uh, discussion with you uh, about our Jewish community, about life in America, uh, the perspective you bring. So first, um, tell us a little bit about where you come from, what, what brought you to this part of the world, and all that kind of good stuff. So I always say I've been kidnapped to America because I am as a Zionist as can come. All my life I lived in Israel and I actually was a tour guide for a big part of my life. I started in high school actually when I was in the 11th grade. I continued to be a tour guide in the army and then I continued to do that until I came to Israel. It gave me like 20 years of guiding all around Israel. Okay, so you and how long have you been in America? So, I'm here, actually, at uh, Christmas Eve, we landed here three years ago. Three years so ago. So, we just celebrated three years, three years yeah. of moving here. Yeah. Gosh, you know, even your little introduction raises lots of questions, like, what's it like to be, for you to have been in the army? What was that like in Israel? That's a whole world in itself. But yeah, it's true. Yeah, go ahead. What? So, actually, to whatever I chose to do in the army kind of changed my life for the good. I, did, I don't think I can say that I was that smart, that I chose it because I knew that it will save my life. But for me, I can say that about the army because when I was in school, I spent most of my time next to school. And I started to, do, to be a tour guide and to guide. So when I needed to choose what I'm going to do in the army, I chose to be a tour guide. So the army actually gives you that opportunity. And I was guiding in Jerusalem as a soldier with my army clothes, a lot of pictures of tourists around the world want to take a picture of a tour guide that is actually a soldier. And that gave me my profession to, you know, to be successful and to work after Army and to succeed. You know, I know that in the uh, American culture, uh, soldiers, although over the past number of years because of a number of conflicts that our government in this country has gotten into, we are more aware of the army and their presence in, in our communities. Uh, for many people, it's a distant idea. And yet in Israel, it's part of Israeli culture that people served in the army. And uh, it's considered, it was considered, and even though there have been struggles because of the political situation, uh, people not wanting to go into the army because of it, etc., it's basically an honor to be in the army there, considered just part of the cultural experience of growing up in Israel. This is true. Even when, you, when you're a child, the fact that you're going to be a soldier is something that you grew up with, and it's something that you're talking with your friend, even when you are in the sixth grade. You know that you're going to be a soldier, and when you're growing up, your parents always will tell you, you know, let's say, you fell down and you hurt your knee, so your parents will say, oh, no, no, you're not crying, you're going to be a tough soldier. So even before it's time, even before the 12th grade, this is all we're talking about. What are we going to do in the army? How much can we give to the army? And you know, the big question of politics, we talked about them even before 
we went to the army. But in the big picture, we just want to give to the country, and we want to be part of the army. It's, it's, it's a great experience. The other thing is that we need to remember that because everybody's going to the army, there's a lot of job in the army. Also, you can be a soldier and could be a tour guide like me, right? And you change life from different ways. And you can be a, a soldier that fights. You also you can be educator. There's a lot of women that go and help people in jail and give them a little bit more education, and you do that as part of their army service. So the army is, uh, in this, in a way, a large. Uh, bowl of different opportunities for people in their lives to grow. And uh, in the book Startup Nation, of course, he talks about the notion that the Army creates relationships among people that are close and that give people, after the Army, uh, entrepreneurial opportunities to come together. Oh, my friend in the Army was a technical person. <laughs> let me get him into this business and let me pull this person in. And it's a whole different cultural experience than we often have here in America. So what's this, what's this adjustment to American culture been like for you? Well, if I will be honest, it took uh, maybe like a year until I stopped crying. It was very hard, even though I felt like I know the American community because like the 10 years of my life before I moved here, I was working constantly only with Americans. And not just American, but Jewish American family. So I felt like... I, I have it. Like, I know it's, how it's going to be. And I'm coming in here, and, I'm, and I always said about myself, if American has circles and Israel is a square, I'm a square that you cut his, uh, the corners. The corners. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to be okay. And then I find, come here, and I find out that, nah, I'm still very much a square in here. Like, one example is the rhythm. Everybody have a very low rhythm. And I'm coming here, and I'm like, let's go. Come on, we need to do it. Like, I would go crazy in a coffee house because it's taken so much time to make a coffee. And I feel like I'm standing there, like, burning because it's like I have a different rhythm. Mm. With time, I find myself slowing down. And my rhythm is a, a little bit more like everybody else. That would be one example. The second example, I find out I, I speak English, my broken English, but I speak English, but I don't speak American. And I can ask a question like, hey, do you want to go to the park? And people will give me a long, long answer. And in the end of the answer, I'm like, hmm, that was a yes or no? Because I, I didn't get it. So that's something that is very, very strong, like in the culture. And there's a lot of stuff. I don't know how many you want me to give. Oh, no, I, I understand it. And that those are indeed cultural differences. And uh, many Americans, of course, don't, don't uh, have the experience of, living and being in another country, another environment, another cultural setting for a long time to be able to recognize that there are these many, many differences in cultures that sitting here in America, isolated in our little world, we don't uh, think about it all. So I think it's important for us to listen to what being here sounds like and feels like to someone who hasn't grown up here just to give us a certain appreciation either for what we have or an, or an understanding of what we don't have and what we might be able to do in a different way, and mostly to respect the differences in culture that other people bring in as they come into this country, whether they're immigrants from Israel or Europe or Asia. Everybody brings in different things to add to the depth of American experience, so I think that's important. And I, and I would say that people definitely 
uh, they're very polite that they will not ask you about um, your culture or your difference because I think they will think that is rude. Like mm-hmm. uh, if I'm talking with Christian people and I will say I'm Jewish, they will never ask me, oh, tell me what does that mean? Or if I will like uh, say something in conversation like, oh, yes, in Israel we used to do that, they will move on because they will not want to dig. And I always felt like they don't want to, you know, to ask me personal question or something like that. But it's always felt very, very welcome. Like, oh, this is okay. You're welcome anyway. But they will not dig in the details to find out about, you know, the mm-hmm. differences. But they will be very much welcome. No matter if what I said right now was like, oh, we didn't get it. But never mind. Come over here. Join us. So about six months ago, we at B'nai Israel Jewish Center, we had an, our annual meeting of the community. And we were in the midst of uh, elections for the board of directors. And this Israeli woman stands up and says, I'd like to be on the board of directors. That was you, of course. And what was that for? What, what motivated you? And that we were all pleasantly uh, surprised, happy to welcome you on the board. But what was that? What was going on for you? Well, first of all, I was surprised that you got me on the board. And like, really <laughs> seriously, me, little me. So that was a surprise. Um, I didn't know I'm going to do that. I actually came there because I wanted to influence. Um, I have an idea, you know. I feel like a, I have a vision. And I felt like if I want to do it, I need to stand up and, and do it. And more than that, I felt like there's an open, there's a beautiful open door of people saying, oh, if you have an idea, just, just come and do it, and we will support you, and we will help you. And someone in this room also gave me money to do it, but it's nice. So I felt there's an opportunity, but the, the reason is that since I came here, I'm feeling like I'm seeking something. I'm, I'm looking for a community. I'm not just looking for a community for myself, but I'm looking for my son, and I'm looking for a community or to build something that a lot of people can be related. I met so many people in so so many Jewish events from different organizations, and everybody say the same thing. They say, I really want to be Jewish. I want to do more Jewish stuff, but I don't feel relate myself to praying in the synagogue or for this kind of Judaism or for that kind of Judaism. And I'm looking at them, but, but there's another way of being Jewish, the way that I grew up. And it's so much fun because it's not about what exactly you're doing in the synagogue. It's not about praying. It's not about, you know, the clothes that you're wearing. It's not about the song that you're singing. It's about celebrating. It's about being together in the community and celebrate the holidays and have fun and, you know, enjoy and eat. And, and I say, where is that Judaism? So when I came here, you know, the first thing I do is come and talk to you. Right, right? of because course. Where's my that people? Was good. Right? Where's my people? They're in the synagogue. But I felt like I, I cannot connect to this Judaism. And everybody told me, um, okay, you don't know American Judaism. That's why it's hard for you to connect. That's true. But I worked with, with a lot of Americans when I was in Israel. So I do know the prayers, and I know the Reformed Judaism a little bit. And I feel like I know it, but it doesn't mean that it is my way to connect to my Judaism. And I think you know it very good. I consider myself Jewish. I am very much strong about it. Um, I love to celebrate the holidays. I love to be Jewish. I love the knowledge about to be part of the history. But when it's come to wor- to worshiping, sorry, I have a different idea of how I'm supposed to do it. And so I saw that I cannot find myself, but I was looking for any other options that exist around us in Pataluma. 
And I find that nothing is it. Nothing is the thing that me can develop myself and my son and my family. So I thought, okay, so let's just build it. So that opportunity when someone say, okay, so somebody want to be a board member, I was like, uh-huh. I think this is my opportunity to go and to change or to build something from the inside. Because at that time, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go and talk with somebody and tell them about my opinion. But then I thought, no, let's start and see if we can build it. And see that one of the cultural differences, of course, is that in Israel, all of that is built into being part of Israel. The Jewish culture is there. The holiday experiences are there. It's part and parcel of growing up. It's it's there because it's it's the Jewish state. It's it's you know the only equivalent I can think of in America would be. Jews who come from the New York area where there's a large Jewish population will say, you know, I never went to the synagogue, I never participated at that level, but I always was always engaged in Jewish life in many ways because a lot of Jewish people around. So when you come to a smaller community like Petaluma, it becomes different. Um, many years ago, someone referred to California back in the, I think it was the 90s, would say, uh, California is the refugee camp for ba- baby boomers escaping the East Coast and uh, and the establishment of the East Coast wanting this other kind of environment. And what your experience is the consequence of that, is the consequence of that, and it's hard. So, so what I learned is that I cannot do it by myself, right? I have to have a community. I cannot sit at home and celebrate Purim. It, it doesn't, doesn't give it the effect of the happiness that the, my child needs to observe from the holiday. It's a great holiday, but to be able to celebrate it, you have to have a community. You have to have kids. You have to have the feeling of fun. And then um, I'm going back to the community and say, do you, do you want to be part of this? Do you want to help me raise my child in this kind of a Jewish life or Jewish community? So I'm still looking for everybody that would like to be part of it. The other thing that you said that we do get it in Israel it's like education, because since you're in kindergarten, every holiday, you get the information about the holiday from school. So when you get to the 12th grade, you know everything there's know about Hanukkah, Purim, Pesach. You know. You know your history. You know your religion, because you learn Torah in school. And you know the culture. And I feel like in here, I'm standing and like, where, where is that opportunity for teach my son the stories, the history? So I feel that I have J school, right? Mm-hmm. That's, one, that's my opportunity, but I have to give it. I have to think about how do I give it to my son and to be active about it. J school is B'nai Israel Jewish Center's uh, Sunday religious school in cooperation with Congregation Ner Shalom and Katadi. Yes, and we have to, we constantly are trying to find ways to educate our children, give people the experience. And you're right, you're absolutely right. It's Growing up in Israel is so different from an educational point of view. And I believe Israelis are brought up from an educational system of a, a great consciousness of history, of the past, not just uh, of the Holocaust, which is, of course, a piece of that, uh, and the founding of the State of Israel, but the history of the Jewish people through the Tanakh, through the Bible, uh, through the various communities that developed over the centuries in various places and all the blushes, the different kinds of Jewish ideas that came out over those centuries. 
American culture, from my perspective, is not historically conscious in general. It's a general statement. But that applies also, therefore, to the Jewish community. Uh, while we may study uh, the George Washington in, uh, in public school when we're growing up, George Washington, his pictures on the dollar bill, which we don't even look at anymore because we're using credit cards, but uh, th- what, what that whole struggle to make this nation meant it isn't reinforced anymore, I don't believe, in our culture. But you know, what, you know what I think, of course, it's my opinion, that when you learn the history, it's kind of grounds you down to what it is. It's, it's very hard to take a child, and I can tell you what I, what I was guiding. So what I used to tell the kids that came to Israel and do a bar mitzvah, you know, Americans' families put in a lot, a lot of money to be able to bring the child, like he's, when he's 13, to travel all around Israel and then to do some kind of a small bar mitzvah, let's say, on the mountain of Metzada or something like this. And I will tell you what I used to tell this kid. When you come into Israel or when you sit down and you're learning the history of the Jewish people, if it's through the Bible or if it's through the Jewish books, after you read all of that, and then you take a child that is 13 and you say, now that you know the history and you know what's happened and you can choose, do you want to continue? Do you want to be part of the Jewish people? Do you want to be part of this beautiful history, beautiful chain? Now he can choose because he has something to ground him. He has something that he knows. He has something that he can make a decision. But if he doesn't know all of that and we just ask him, do you want to be Jewish? He's like, what does that mean? Be part of what? To do what? So I feel it, it's not fair to ask a question that the child doesn't even know what is the question. So I would say, may, I don't know, maybe we're lacking a little bit of that, a little bit of education about what is our history and what are we actually holding in our hands. Right, and many, many young adults, uh, many adults are uneducated from a Jewish standpoint and have made decisions in their life about their relationship to their Jewish identity without without information. And that's, as a rabbi and as a teacher, that's always been a challenge for me. I, my goal, of course, is to try to help educate people to what this endeavor called Judaism is about. And it's not about just believing in God or reciting the prayers. I agree with you on that. You know that I do. And it sound, may sound different coming from a rabbi for that to be said, but, but it's about a much broader historical context, uh, sociological things, and the values that come have come forth in our tradition because of what happened to us in our history. I think, I think especially with you, I think the first time I talked with you, I was like, what? You're a rabbi that does not believe in the Messiah? Hmm, interesting. So I think especially with you, somebody felt like, you know what, I... I don't know, I don't connect to Judaism. I think if he's talking to you, you, you actually give him a range of which part you don't connect and which part you can connect because you have a lot of ways to connect to God. There are, what I see about you. Thank you. And there, there are lots of ways to do that. There are lots of ways to do that. So if you had a message for young families out there who are uh, Jewish or one Jewish partner or determine their house is going to be Jewish, what would you like to invite them to do? Okay, I, I would say it's like what I feel about it. I feel like I have a five years old, and Your by son now, is five years old. Is five. Yeah. By now, he's listened to me. He's going with me to whatever I will say. So I feel until he's maybe four, thirteen or twelve, I have this tiny window of 
show him what is Judaism, teach him the stories, teach him the history, teach him the fun, teach him what is to be part of a Jewish vibe happy community. Now, I'm going to welcome everybody to be part of this community, to come with your children and with your family, and all we're going to do is to celebrate together, to be Jewish together, to be happy together, and to teach the kids the beauty of being Jewish in a in a nice, active way that's appropriate for kids, in my eyes. So if someone want to be part of that group, and I have to say, we are very secular. I know it's a very Israeli way to say that. We are very look at Judaism in a very secular way. That's why we welcome a lot of families that they are from mixed religions, because we are, because our Judaism is very much connected to the ground and connected to history. So if you want to be part of us, guys, you can contact us. Yes, and of course, B'nai Israel Jewish Center is open to those families and, and all kinds of experiences that we want to be able to have, whether it be social, spiritual, religious, educational, we, we all have that uh, opportunity. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, the, the county rabbis are doing an introduction to Judaism course through the Jewish Community Center, which actually starts next Wednesday night. So the Sonoma County Jewish Community Center website has the registration that people can get more education about Jewish history, Jewish experience uh, through that course. Um, I understand you're going to uh, Cuba uh, in a couple of days. Wow, what's, uh, what's that about? Well, you know, I can complain that I've been kidnapped here from Israel, <laughs> but I am married to the best man in the world, and... He just wants me to be happy. So hearing me, he's hearing me talking about Cuba for a long, long time. And he said, well, together we will not go because we have a child that is five years old. So for my birthday party, he organized me and my friend to go to Cuba for a week. Wow. And what are you going to uh, just, uh, just for fun? For, uh, are you going to do anything particular there? Or? I'm going to explore culture. Uh-huh. I'm just going to see how is the local people live. Yeah. It's going to be too much fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll find out if it's a square and a round and if you fit <laughs> in and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, you'll, we'll, we'll find that out when you return. I think it's fascinating. Do you think you'll have any, uh, make any attempt to connect with the Jewish community in Havana? It's funny because when I'm reading everything about Cuba and Hebrew, so again and again is the Jewish community, the Jewish synagogue, yeah, right, how you connect right. there. To be honest, probably not. Okay, that's probably fine, not. that's fine. In, you know, in the uh, early days of uh, Cuba being opened up, people would actually cart prayer books to them and different Jewish things. I actually am not uh, aware. I think they have the things that they need at this stage of the game, but there were times when they couldn't get access to Jewish things that they wanted to, whether it be foods or uh, ritual items, etc. So uh, really? that was the old days, yeah. Well, now I'm going to check. You're going to check know. it out. <laughs> yeah, you might want to check out and and uh, see what happens there. Now, this is uh, I really appreciate that you've been uh, the work that you've put in and the spirit that you bring to it. Uh, I know that living in American culture can sometimes be a challenge from an Israeli viewpoint. There used to be this term called, well, there is this term called Yordim, which means literally to go down. When you move to Israel, it is Aliyah to go up to Israel. And when you leave Israel, it's called Yordim. And that was a kind of a negative term. Is it still around there? And what was your experience with it? So I grew up 
when it's a negative term. Like uh, I remember sitting in school, uh, the sixth grade, argue about politics, screaming, and also screaming about, you know, people that leave Israel, how can you live it? This is our country, the Jewish place, and, and stuff like that. So when I understand that I will not live all my life in Israel, it was a very, very hard time for me. Not just living my family and living in Jerusalem, but I also need to leave Israel, the place that I grew up that you need to die for in case that it's needed. So I felt hard to, uh, to tell people I'm living. I felt shame. But for my surprise, the majority of the people that I said I'm going to go and live in America was like, wow, good for you. Enjoy. Have fun. And I was very much surprised. And apparently there's a lot of Israelis that live now all around the world. And a lot of them are living in America and many Israelis find that uh, is, that life in Israel can be difficult, as beautiful as it is. And I, I, I see it when I'm there and feel it, and I miss it when I'm not there. It's also because of the, the world situation, the politics, uh, etc. It's a difficult place to live. And uh, for that, they're happy for you that you're going to find something they hope for you will be better. It's true. But you know, and this is what I usually say, People ask me, how can you want to live in Israel and love Israel that much when Israel has, of course, a lot of, of problems. And for my husband, is American, to live through a war in Israel and to run with our baby to the bomb shelter was make absolutely no sense. But for me, it was like, that's the thing you do. So I always say, imagine that you marry to someone. Like the most, this is your beautiful wife, that you love her. She's the best thing ever. And she's crippled. You know, she's in a wheelchair. And someone will come and say, wow, that's your wife? She's, she's in a wheelchair. He said, yeah, but she's my wife, and I love her, and she's the best thing ever. Say, so why don't you, you know, go and find somebody that can walk and dance and have fun? He would look at him and say, what? This mm -hmm. is ridiculous. So what? This is Tiny's problem that she has. It's not what makes her her. And for me, this is about Israel. Yes, we have our problem. Yes, to run to bomb shelter with kids makes absolutely no sense. But this is what we have, and we love to have a country, and we're going to fight for it. So many years ago, when the Jews were coming from Europe, uh, a, a, a comedian, a Jewish comedian, wrote this thing. He said, when my grandparents came from Europe, they called this the Golden Medina, the gold state, the gold country. It was beautiful, and everything was beautiful in America. What they never said was that when you get there, you're the one that has to pave the streets with the gold. So you're finding that when you come here and you're looking for your Jewish community, you're wanting to make it something more special for you. And I thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being with us uh, today on the radio. And you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA, LP, FM, Petaluma, California. FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson, and today we're talking with Dr. Peter Bernstein about finding purpose 
finding the right sort of control to look for in situations of extreme adversity, struggles, and distress. And just before our break, I posed a thought to Peter following up on what he was talking about. And it had to do with attitude and an approach to adversity uh, that is instead of feeling powerless or not having any choices, to look instead for ways to act, choices to make, even if they're unfamiliar, even if they're not the things that have worked before. And I wanted to know what you can say about those topics. How do we approach that? How do we look at our attitude about hard times? A lot, there's a lot in that question. I'm glad I asked you to repeat it. Um, you know, I, I look at people who have been through a lot including myself and so many people that have helped. And, you know, uh, when when folks go through very difficult times, uh, I don't know if this is going to relate. I will tie it up for you. And they're stripped of everything, all the control, all the things that have been familiar to them, all the things that meant something to them and they valued. Well, life hits all of us. And when those things are stripped away, like for a key example is the the fires in California now. People are